I've been doing this for a long time. I'm also a Reform Rabbi, um, and my father was a Reform Rabbi, was a Reform Rabbi, and my my uh, uh, son-in-law is a Reform Rabbi. So we have a lot of rabbis in the family. But I chose an academic path, and I've been teaching students for many years, and and loving it. I mean, I, it's been really a, quite a privilege. Um, the reason I'm here, as you can imagine, is my two grandchildren. Uh, and also the joy of giving uh, lectures, maybe not 21, but uh, nevertheless uh, teaching. Um, what I've done, if you've seen the brochure for the whole month, I, you, I just want to sort of contextualize what I'm doing this evening. Um, uh, the way I gave uh, Ari Katz uh, these lectures is to give them clusters. So even though they don't follow uh, one after the other, there are clusters of topics. Uh, for example, there are a whole series on uh, great disputations or disputes between Jews in, in, uh, in the Middle Ages and the modern era. Um, and I've done several of them. Uh, there is a whole series which I'm finishing, I think, tomorrow night on God and nature, on the interaction between Jews and the natural world, science and medicine. Uh, there is another lecture series that will start soon on the messianic idea in Jewish history. Uh, and this one is really uh, an oldie and goodie. I, began, I created this lecture series on great cities, Jewish cities, by leading a tour. Uh, my wife and I have led for many years trips to Europe. Um, I began working for an organization which is now the functional of the World Jewish Congress. Um, and uh, they had me create whatever I wanted to create, so I said a tale of three Jewish cities. And these cities, of course, were connected. Uh, the first was Prague. The second was Venice, the third was Amsterdam. Uh, particularly the last two. Uh, my last lecture, last uh, uh, Shabbat, was on Venice. Um, and Venice and Amsterdam are connected one way, which is obvious. What, what, what is that? What did you say? Canals, right, canals, yeah. Canals. Um, and, uh, but it's even more than that. Uh, the Jews who came to Amsterdam, as you will hear, in the 17th century, came without any marker, without any guide on how to be Jewish. They were returning from living in a Christian world and now reclaiming their Jewish birthright. And clearly, the mother church for them, so to speak, if we give the term, uh, uh, to talk about Jews, is was Venice. In other words, the Sephardic rabbinate in Venice were the ones that helped rebuild them and create uh, a, a Jewish community in Amsterdam. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. In any case, these three cities became, or were all, and Prague also was connected in other ways, uh, became thus a tour, and after that I began lecturing on them. Uh, and of course I teach these Jewish communities. My own field is early modern Jewish history, meaning roughly from the period of the expulsion from Spain until the Enlightenment period, uh, and most of the books that I've written are on that period. Um, a number of people have received uh, a book that I wrote in 2010, which is a kind of synopsis of this entire period called Early Modern Jewelry, A New Cultural History. Uh, and if you read that, uh, there are actually snippets of uh, what I'm talking about uh, from a variety of lectures uh, in, that, in that book. But, you know, you came to listen tonight, not to read, so uh, I want to do my job. So here's what, what I, I want to do. Tonight is Amsterdam. It's one of my favorite cities. Uh, I will be there uh, in about three or four weeks uh, because I spend time in Antwerp and Amsterdam uh, almost every other year. Um, and I lecture there in the University of Amsterdam. Uh, and I'm going to give you the Jewish Museum, which of course is not. How many of you have been to Amsterdam, first of all? All 
could describe the markers of, of the city very easily, and you will recognize them. I'm sure all of you have, have seen the great synagogue in Amsterdam, the Sephardic synagogue, and the Jewish Museum, and so on and so forth. Uh, so here's what I want to do. I want to have an introduction. I then want to talk about uh, the background of how Jews got to Amsterdam, which of course is a kind of bird's eye view of the history of the Muranos or Conversos. Uh, and then I want to talk about Amsterdam itself and its cultural gradients. In the 17th century, there was a Jew who had left Portugal who came to Amsterdam. Um, he imagined Judaism to be freedom from what he considered the servitude of the Catholic Church, the traditions of Catholicism. He was going to redeem himself by returning to the biblical text, the biblical Hebrew. That was for him a kind of liberating experience to open him up to the larger world. Uh, he came to Amsterdam. Uh, his name was Uriel da Costa. Uh, and he there confronted uh, a mamad. A mamad was the term for the legislative body of Amsterdam, the Jewish community of Amsterdam, uh, who demanded full allegiance to Jewish law, to both the written and the oral law, to both the biblical text and the rabbis, with all kinds of demands, with a synagogue which demanded a ritual uh, behavior of the highest level. He didn't understand where all these accretions came from. He thought Judaism was simply returning to the Bible. And he was also a free thinker, and Judaism in, this, in, in the city of Amsterdam seemed to require of him to think in a certain way. And thus he rebelled. He ultimately wrote a book against the oral law of the rabbis, the oral custom, which was, and subsequently it was in manuscript for many years, but it was, it was subsequently published. In his autobiography, he tells us that when he starts breaking the law, the mamad had him arrested and brought before a tribunal very similar and the kind of precursor of the story of Spinoza, uh, at least the myth of how Spinoza was treated. Um, and there uh, he was told to recant his sins, and he laid down on the ground, and they walked across his body to humiliate him, uh, and he recanted, but later on he went back to sinning, and he was brought back in, but this time he committed suicide. So that's a pretty horrible story. Um, is it a true story? Uh, it is in his Latin autobiography published after his death. Clearly it was a propagandistic uh, value for those who published it to indicate uh, the limitations of Judaism, of rabbinic Judaism, and so on. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Uriel de Costa was one of the very few people declared as a heretic within the Jewish community of Amsterdam, and clearly, as I suggested, a precursor of Benedict Spinoza, who we'll talk about a little later on. Now that's the first story. That's a kind of negative story. Now I have another story to tell you. Uh, I've been telling this story for many... I, I actually haven't given this lecture for a really, well, not that long, but a number of years. But anyway, I, this story I haven't told for a while, so if it's embellished or with a figure in my imagination, I apologize. But you wouldn't know the difference anyway, you know? <laughs> Between news and fake news, you know all about that. Uh, in any case, this is, oh, this is a real story. Uh, so uh, my wife and I were back, going back to Israel. My doctorate is from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, so I spent a lot of time in Israel. Um, and uh, we were on our way back um, 
co-opted in the 74, 75, uh, and we got caught because there was a war. And we got caught in Europe. Uh, and it was Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Uh, it was actually uh, Yom Kippur. And uh, we didn't know where to go, so why not go to the great Sephardic synagogue in Amsterdam? We were, we were in Amsterdam. We had these, uh, what was the airline they used to fly at that time? KLM. It was KLM, right? And there was like a $100 uh, flight. And we were four students at the time. Uh, so, it was, so we went through Amsterdam, and then we went on to Tel, to Tel Aviv. Um, so we were there for Yom Kippur, and um, I was escorted in with my wife, and of course my wife had to go to the women's gallery, and I went straight forward, uh, and without uh, any uh, inhibition, I walked right up to the front and sat in one of the first rows of the synagogue. Now, I don't know if you've, you've seen the synagogue, perhaps, uh, but I, you've never seen it in all its glory. Uh, there are no, there's no electricity, but there are candles. And there are 613 candles, I'm told, uh, to honor the 613 meets vote. And you can imagine this remarkable uh, sanctuary with all of these candles, probably a fire hazard, uh, but nevertheless, uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, and I sat down in a seat, and of course I didn't have a, a machzor, I didn't have a prayer book. Um, so what you do in a synagogue such as this is you reach into the seat. And I reached all the way down to the very, very bottom, picked up a machzor, and I opened it up, and it was published in Amsterdam in the 17th century. Um, I don't know what I was doing there. It should have been in a rare book room, not there. Uh, and I opened up, uh, you know, ready to hear the Kol Nidre, uh, of course, with the melodies. By, uh, later on, I came back for a sabbatical report at the University of Amsterdam, and there they would have services every Shabbat. After my mother died, uh, in the course of that visit, so I said cottage there. They have a small Talmud Torah on the side, and there's a small sanctuary there where I pray. But I never was able to pray in the large synagogue. This was usually closed. It's, it's simply now uh, more or less uh, uh, a museum. But anyway, I opened up the prayer book, and believe it or not, uh, I mean, I knew the prayer book, uh, but prior to the Kol Nidre was a long prayer in Hebrew, and I couldn't believe, I had never seen anything like this in my life. You know that the, the history of the Kol Nidre prayer has, has a very long history. Part of it, part of it myth, part of it reality, is it, it, it's that emerged, or at least became significant in the context of the experience of the Muranos. The Muranos, of course, were those who had been forcefully converted or voluntarily converted to Judaism. I'll talk about them in just one second. Uh, and then returned to Judaism. And thus, the prayer about vows, about, about uh, being allowed to revoke our vows and so on, seemed extremely relevant for the Murano experience. And there indeed was a prayer about coming out of the lion's den, facing the new world of freedom, reclaiming one's Jewishness. I don't remember the prayer after all of these years. That was a long time ago. But I do recall that that prayer seems to have been written to reflect this larger experience. So sitting there, reading that prayer book, connecting to a 17th century prayer book, with all of those lights, uh, I sort of entered a time machine, uh, and I had a, a spiritual experience, Rabbi, you'll appreciate that, uh, because he's very good at, at creating those kind of experiences, I understand, as a rabbi here. Um, but I had a spiritual experience at that moment. It was, I, I was flown away, I was, I was flying. Uh, and this was perhaps the most significant Yom Kippur of my life. Anyway, so that's by way of introduction. All right, so I talked about 
or the cast on the one hand, and then David Ruderman on the other hand. Well, I, I, that's an interesting question. Uh, I put it back. Um, there was a very famous uh, scholar in Jerusalem when I was doing my doctorate uh, named Meir Ben-Ayahu. He was actually the, the son of the chief Sephardic rabbi. And he told me when I was going to do research trips, he says, when you see a rare book, just take, put it in your pocket and take it with you because these Jews don't appreciate the importance of it. And he, he happened to have one of the great private libraries of Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> but I promise you, I didn't, I didn't take the book. Uh, the only book I ever took, um, which I mentioned in the Venice lecture, if you recall, uh, my father was once the rabbi in Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York, where Vassar College is. Um, and the, one of the first books I read was on um, the Jews of Italy, which became a passion of mine, uh, by Cecil Roth. And someone has studied here, where are you, that studied the whole year with Cecil Roth uh, on the Muranos, right there. Um, and um, I, actually, I have that book still in my library, the, the History of the Jews of the Renaissance. Uh, it says, Property of Vassar uh, Temple. Uh, <laughs> years ago. So I, I, I promise I, I'm going to return it, just a little longer. <laughs> in any case, uh, let's, let's get serious here. All right, so now I, I want to do two things. I'm going to do it relatively quickly. Oh, there's the clock, so I don't even need this. Um, history of the Muranos. To understand how we get to Amsterdam, I need to retrace our steps back several centuries. And I'm going to do this relatively quickly, but nevertheless, I want you to understand that this is a very complex history uh, with many interpretations by various scholars. And I'll mention a few of them, but I will try to make it as simple as possible. Our story begins, let's say, in 1391. The Jewish community in the Middle Ages in Spain is the largest community anywhere. Originally, of course, it was Islamic, but beginning in 1085, the, Jews re uh, the Christians return, what is called the Reconquista, uh, they return uh, crossing uh, the Pyrenees and enter into Spain uh, and uh, conquer Toledo, uh, and then move more and more south. I don't know if, uh, how many of you have also been to Spain. Uh, ultimately, they do not reclaim the entire peninsula until 1492, uh, when uh, the Jews, of course, are expelled, uh, and, uh, and, and, and when the final kingdom of the Muslims, Granada, is taken. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, centuries earlier, most of Spain is Christian Spain. In, 13, in the 14th century, the Jews are relatively well off. They're experiencing uh, economic prosperity. Uh, in previous centuries, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have lived in relative tranquility. Um, um, the, the word in Spanish, oh, the, you, you're very close to the border here, so you know Spanish, right? <laughs> uh, convivencia. Uh, that's the, uh, I don't know Spanish that well, but anyway, that, that word is a, is a a word which, which speaks about the harmony of the three religions, that, that's clearly a myth. But nevertheless, the possibility that Jews, Christians, and Muslims could live together in Iberia uh, was a, a definite possibility. In fact, Spain, for Jewish historians, is an incredible place to talk about because it expresses all of the emotions you know, on the rainbow, beginning with the possibility of tolerance and tranquility on the one hand, at the end of this period, I will use another Spanish word called limpieza de sangre, which means the purity of blood. Legislative laws prohibiting Jews from public office, from army, etc. In other words, racial, the beginning of racial anti-Semitism. 
So how do we get from one extreme to the other? I mean, for, a, for an historian, that's a laboratory of human emotions. But it is also a remarkable history. But anyway, let's move on. 1391, a pogrom break breaks out in Castile and Aragon, the two major provinces of Spain. Jews are uh, persecuted. Many of them are killed. There have been previous pogroms, of course, in Jewish history. But what is unique about 1391 is a large number of Jews, rather than kill themselves on Kiddush Hashem, something they did during the Crusade period, in other words, dying on the sanctification of God's name, they simply converted. Now you could say they were forced to be converted, or if they were voluntarily converted, or whatever the reason, and that's a very complicated question. Many converge. In 1412, 1414, a series of disputations in the city of Tortosa over a two-year period brings Jews to listen to the harangues of Christian preachers uh, and ultimately to encourage them to approach the baptismal font. Uh, sorry, she doesn't like my lecture. Or is it she, right? He. He, sorry about that. Uh, that's why she didn't like me. I mean, he didn't like me. Uh, so, um... This brings about further tragedy and further despair and a larger number of Jews simply giving up the ship and converting. Now, there have always been examples of individuals converting in Jewish history to Christianity, but never en masse to this degree. By the middle of the 15th century, roughly one-third of the entire Jewish population of Spain had converted to Christianity. Were they voluntary converts? Were they forced converts? <coughs> That's a question which historians have debated. In 1481, an inquisition was called by Thomas Torquemada, sanctioned by the papacy itself in Spain, to deal with the problem of these new Christians called conversos, or called by the derogatory term Muranos, uh, or swine. Uh, these were not Jews. They were individuals who had converted to Christianity either voluntarily or forcefully, but were accused of being crypto-Jews, that is, practicing Judaism in secret while externally living as Christians. And therefore, this was heresy, and therefore the Inquisition had a right to try them. And indeed, from the end of the 15th, of the 15th century until 1492, uh, we have a very serious problem for um, the Moranos. In 1492, the Jews are expelled from Spain. Now the Jews we are speaking about. Prior to that, the, the, there has been a debate, and I guess I should mention his name because he is also a part of modern Jewish history, um, between people like Cecil Roth, a great historian from Oxford, uh, and particularly the great Israeli historian Yitzhak Baer, uh, and my own teacher, I did my doctorate at the university, Chaim Beinart, who believed that these Muranos were indeed all forced, and that they were living a crypto life, and therefore when the Inquisition tried them, and ultimately burned them at the stake, or punished them, or, or, or did horrible things to them, they were being accused of a heresy which was indeed a heresy. These people were Jews. To quote the rabbinic line, even if they have sinned, they were still Jews. This kind of romantic retelling of the story of the Moranos actually came out and was a product particularly of Israeli historians. <laughs> and Mayor and, and <coughs> Yitzhak Bayer, 
Yitzhak yeah. Beyer, who has written for us a two-volume history of the Jews of Christian Spain, uh, eloquently portrays this image of the comparison. When I was in college, uh, there was an historian who challenged them. And I'm sure you've heard of his name before. Uh, his last name is Netanyahu. Uh, this is Ben Sion Netanyahu, and the father of Bibi. Um, if you want to understand Bibi's ideology, just read his father's books on the Inquisition. Um, I won't go into it in very great depth, but I'll just explain what he argued. Essentially, for him, the Inquisition was a show trial. It was insincere. It basically was using trumped-up religious charges to defeat an economic group of new Christians that had entered the Christian world and were stealing jobs from old Christians. <laughs> and therefore, the motivation of the Inquisition was ultimately economic-political, using religious ideology to get at these groups of people. This was Netanyahu's thesis in a book he wrote in, uh, in 1966, called the Moranos of Spain. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole debate and you know, who's right and who's wrong here. I, 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 I think both of them are extreme positions. But one thing I want to say, I don't think the inquisitional testimony, which now has become a major source of the study of the Moranos, should be discounted. The inquisitional testimony was kept in secret. It wasn't publicist. It wasn't used to make charges. It wasn't like a Russian show trial. It was something that was sincerely kept under lock and key by the inquisitors. So therefore, whatever their you know, righteous indignation, whatever their motivation, they weren't necessarily you know, post-Nixonian. I mean, they weren't living in a political age where they were using their religious ideology to make these trumped-up charges. So I think Netanyahu exaggerates, uh, and the book, but the book was very provocative in its time. And it caused a large discussion of the Inquisition. Later on, he wrote a larger book uh, called The Spanish Inquisition, um, which sounds like Nazi Germany. Uh, in other words, the way he describes the Inquisition and so on. Um, but uh, as I say to all my students, all history is autobiography. So uh, it, 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 make sure you understand where the historian is coming from. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his own world, uh, his own context. Uh, and that's a very important part of a subject called historiography. In any case, let me move on. So in 1492, the Jews are expelled. Now the Jews, why are the Jews expelled? Because they remain living connections to those Moranos. Get rid of the Jews, and then the Moranos will assimilate, they'll acculturate. So says Isabel, uh, 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 Ferdinand and Isabel, the king and queen of Spain. So in the document of expulsion of the Jews of 1492, an enormously important event for Jewish history uh, in the late Middle Ages. Um, it is, it, the pretext of doing this is not economic or political, but basically to remove the Jews and thus to allow the, these new Christians to return to Christianity in full form. Where did now? So that's the first part of our, of our Murano narrative. The second part begins in 1497. Well, actually, where did the Jews go from Spain? Many of them, they go all over the place. But one of the places they go to is Portugal. And there in Lisbon, they settle. But in 1497, they are expelled from Portugal or forced to convert. So we had a Murano problem in Spain. Now we have a Murano problem in Portugal to a much greater degree. You can't convince people to be Christians 
by decreeing that they convert to Christianity automatically. So they were seriously, so all of a sudden the problem Murano receives in Spain, as the Jews are kicked out, and the Inquisition goes on to trying all kinds of other heretics, but it picks up in Portugal. By 1536, there is an Inquisition in the city of Lisbon in Portugal. And now they are trying, indeed, insincere Moranos, who had been forced in the first place to convert to, to, to Christianity, had been sincere Jews, and now were being tried in a very serious way. Now, two other facts are important for our story, and I, don't, I did not forget we're talking about Amsterdam this evening. <laughs> in 1536, the Inquisition was called, as I said. That wasn't what I was going to say. Um, in 1580, Spain and Portugal are united. So now we have one kingdom. So the men of the Portuguese nation, as they're called, the conversos, given the horrible conditions in Portugal, now move towards Spain. In other words, trying to seek some kind of freedom. But there is another factor here, a factor that has a long history before the end of the 16th century, but rises up to a very high level of intensity in this period of time. And that is the laws of Limbiesa de Sangro. In other words, racial anti-Semitism. Now, yesterday's Jew, who is now a good Christian, is still a Jew, because Jewish blood courses his veins. And these laws, this discrimination, is a very much a part of the history of Spain in the early modern period. Thus, Jews had been expelled in 1492, but by the end of the 16th century, large numbers of conversos, Moranos, flee the Iberian Peninsula. So in other words, we have two waves of immigration. The first is the Jewish one, right? Sephardic Jews moving from Spain to Portugal to Italy to the Ottoman Empire, all over the place. But now we have a different community, a community of conversos, who by the end of the 16th century had fled from Portugal to Spain and now leave the Iberian Peninsula altogether. Where do they go? There are a few places that will take them. One of the major places is the Netherlands and Amsterdam. Another place is Hamburg. Free ports. Another place is Livorno, Leghorn in Italy. These are three of the major centers for the settlement of Jews, of conversos, in uh, early modern Europe. <coughs> Livorno is a very interesting example. I'm not going to speak about it this evening. Uh, I have a, a, one of my doctoral students actually wrote a whole book on the, this community. Um, in Italy, I, uh, I gave a lecture on the ghetto already. Actually, that was the Venetian lecture. Uh, but uh, in Livorno, uh, the conversos were so important economically to the Italian government in Tuscany that they were not a force to live in the ghetto. So Livorno was an open city. Uh, they, in, in the end of the 16th century, a, a writ of, of, of liberation was signed that these people could live anywhere they wanted. So they were clearly living in open society. Uh, in Hamburg also, an open port city, uh, a remarkable place where large numbers of these what we call the Western Sephardic Diaspora, what we mean are former conversos who are returning to their own birthright. And of course, the major site of this remarkable phenomenon uh, is Amsterdam itself. So now we have arrived at Amsterdam. So I'm now in the second part of my lecture. And now I want to describe to you, so and how would you understand, what is Amsterdam? Prior to the coming of the conversos, at the end of the 16th and early 17th century, there were hardly any Jews in this region. 
So what we're speaking about is, on one hand, a community which will be founded on a traditional basis, but in every other respect is new. These are new Jews. They're born-again Jews, if you like that word. Uh, they are Jews by choice. That's what we're talking about here. And you will see the resonances of the modern Jewish experience in the experience of, uh, of uh, Amsterdam immediately. One historian, a great historian, lamented because he's no longer with us, is Yosef Yerushalmi, who has written on the Converso experience. He calls these Jews the first modern Jews. Um, we could agree or disagree with him, but it's, it's, a, it's a very important insight, which I'll come back to later. So what do we have here? Netherlands had broken off from Spanish domination, and they were, had been at war with each other, and now they had separated, and therefore, and, and they declared themselves a site of toleration. Relatively speaking, uh, Amsterdam was the most tolerant city in early modern Europe for all kinds of minorities, Huguenots and, and other uh, individual Christian groups. Essentially, what we're speaking about, therefore, is a refuge from persecution, and therefore, the conversos immediately set their sights on Amsterdam and came there. By the 1620s and 30s, there was an organized Jewish community. There were three small kilot that eventually became one. Uh, a mamad was created, a group, a board of overseers of rich uh, lay Jews. And they made it economically. You've heard of the Dutch East India Company, for example, dominated by conversos. These people were international traders. One of the most interesting areas of Murano research in recent years, I, I, re I recommend another book by Francesca Trevolato at, at Yale University, a book about the economic networks of these conversos all over Europe. They were international traders. They went uh, to the Mediterranean. They went uh, across the Atlantic. Um, if you notice the synagogue in Amsterdam, and if you've been to London, that's the next place where they went to, to uh, the, the Bevismarck Synagogue in London. The synagogues are almost identical in terms of architecture, with, by the way, sawdust on the, on the floor, uh, and the business with the candles, exact same thing. So if you're in London, make sure you visit the Bevismarck Synagogue, and you will see a synagogue exactly like in Amsterdam. But if you still want to travel farther and see more Sephardic synagogues, uh, Amsterdam is another church, um, the, the, go across uh, the Atlantic. Um, and they are come to Recife uh, in Brazil, uh, or uh, um, uh, Curaçao uh, in uh, one of my uh, Reformed Jewish colleagues, uh, Shim Maslin, was the rabbi there for five years. Uh, there was his Reformed synagogue uh, still in Curaçao. Uh, and, uh, and indeed, uh, that synagogue, uh, as far as I know, is still erect and looks exactly like the Amsterdam synagogue. So these people trade it, they eventually end up, uh, and of course, in New Amsterdam itself, that is New York. So what we are speaking about, therefore, is the beginning of a Marano diaspora and the creation of a, an Atlantic Jewish world, which goes by way of, uh, of, uh, of Amsterdam to London, uh, and then across uh, the Atlantic Ocean uh, to America and, and to the Caribbean uh, and to Brazil, etc., etc. And by the way, not only are the Moranos traveling, but ultimately the Inquisition will travel itself as well. An Inquisition in Mexico uh, and Inquisition in Brazil are soon to follow, not only trying conversos, but nevertheless concerned about the issue of heresy uh, and, and heresy hunting, which goes on throughout the 17th, 18th, and even into the 19th century. 
Economically, therefore, this community is very interesting in that there are lots of rich people who make it. In other words, it, given the opportunities available and their economic skills, uh, what we have here are a series of, of, a, of a circle of international merchants of great uh, significance. They create, they are very confident in themselves. They, are, uh, they clearly do not want to offend the Christian authorities, but they have created a kind of economic infrastructure of, which is really quite serious. So first of all, I want to underscore the economic importance of this community. Uh, Amsterdam soon overtakes Venice uh, as an important port. Both of them are port cities, and the Jews living in them are called port Jews. Uh, and, but Venice soon recedes as Amsterdam rises uh, as a major center of economic uh, uh, merchandise uh, trade uh, in the 17th uh, and the 18th century. Um, so that is clearly the economic background. It's also noticed that when the synagogue is built, there is a great deal of confidence. Uh, I, I, I spoke about the Venetian ghetto in my other lecture, and I talked about the fact that on the outside it's rather unimpressive. But on the inside, I use a Latin word, umgepatscht, um, which, oh, you know, Yiddish too. Uh, I think it's better than your Spanish. Uh, but in any case, uh, ornate, uh, baroque. Uh, in other words, they somehow were concerned about being too conspicuous on the outside. But not of Amsterdam. Notice how big that synagogue is. Notice how many pictures of Jews. Uh, uh, Rembrandt and, and others painted of Jews in Amsterdam itself. The Jews are indeed a very conspicuous minority, very proud of themselves, very confident in themselves. Uh, these large synagogues that emerge later on in Italy and Florence, for example, uh, or you know Temple Emmanuel in New York, or you know where, wherever these syn synagogue architecture is a very interesting dimension of talking about Jewish identity. Uh, we call it the um, uh, what's the word. Uh, the, 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 um, Edifice complex, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I almost forgot that. Uh, in any case, uh, the Jews are very proud of their synagogue and very proud of their culture. Right next door is the Talmud Torah. Uh, it is an extraordinary place um, with many manuscripts. If you walk into the library, which is totally not preserved and is a state institution, you will see a library of the first magnitude. In other words, books that were re published in Amsterdam. Amsterdam will eventually become a major publishing center as well. Not only for Hebrew books, not only for books in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, the Moranos, of course, spoke and wrote in Spanish and Portuguese. And you'll hear more about that in a second. Uh, but also uh, by uh, when the conversos, when the Sephardic population begins to drop in the end of the 17th century and is replaced by more and more Ashkenazic Jews that come to Amsterdam. It becomes a major center for publishing Yiddish books as well. Uh, so uh, clearly the publishing industry is a part of this. One of the most famous publishers during the Sephardic era was a figure named Menashe ben Israel, who is very famous because he wrote a book about the Tenoas tribes, argued that before the Messiah would come, Jews need to uh, enter England, and he went to see Oliver Cromwell and tried to convince him to let the Jews get, come into England. He failed. But nevertheless, the conversos snuck in anyway and built their synagogue, as I mentioned. And there was soon a satellite community of conversos in London. What I really want to speak about, though, uh, in the remaining part of my time, and I'm only going to go on for about 10, 10 12 minutes at the most, uh, is the cultural, spiritual world of this community. 
They were those who returned to a traditional community. This is a remarkable miracle of Jewish existence. How is it possible that people who had lived as Christians all of their lives, many of them educated as doctors, many of them educated at Spanish and Portuguese universities, would now reclaim their birthright, learn Hebrew, begin to study Tanakh and Mishnah, uh, and begin to immerse themselves in Jewish sources. Uh, it is an extremely interesting phenomenon. And we have a whole series of writers who are quite significant in terms of Jewish uh, intellectual thought, who begin to write about Judaism. And I, the sources that I gave out here, that they were given out or they're going to be given out. You can take them with you if you haven't looked at them before. Uh, one of them is by Eliyahu Montalto, is a typical example of a converso writer who cares deeply about Judaism, writing to another converso who has lost his faith and trying, and he's trying to convince him. In other words, the beginning of a whole ap ap apologetic literature to try to convince the converso who is lingering in his doubt to return to the Jewish fold. This core of leadership, and I mentioned Elijah de Montalto, uh, I could mention Shaul Levi Mortero. Um, his sermons have been discussed and published in a large book by Mark Saperstein, another Reformed rabbi who has been a professor for many years. Uh, and a whole group of other, Isaac Arobio de Castro. Uh, there's a wonderful biography of him as well. And you can see how they moved from Portugal to Spain, reclaimed their Jewishness, mastered Hebrew, mastered Jewish sources, and became full-bred spokespersons of Judaism. What is really interesting about this group is, um, and I, I guess, I don't know if I can describe it, you'll forgive me, I'm an old guy, so, but uh, there was once a day where I knew something about marijuana and that kind of thing. Did you ever think, uh, and I, I, I've never smoked, of course, I never inhaled, <laughs> <laughs> said, uh, why am I talking about mar marijuana? Because there was something about that culture of the 1960s where, uh, you know, you got to do it. It's, uh, you know, everybody's, it's not enough that they smoke. They have to get you to smoke as well. You know, it, It's really important that they share. So something about the, these born-again Jews, they, they, they need, with their smile, to turn on everybody else's Jewishness. So there's a, a remarkable dimension of, of, of their concern to, to bring others into the faith. But as you see, not all conversos return. There were conversos who were indifferent to any religion. There were conversos that remained in southern France who were lingering in their Christian uh, identity and simply hid out. They didn't, you knew they were Jewish, but indeed they did not identify publicly. They never came out of the closet. Uh, and there, there were others that were simply anti-religious, as you will hear in the first place. Or there were those who felt very strongly about their Catholic faith. And then there, in addition to that, there were others who said, you know, I'm in Amsterdam, it's nice, but the weather here really stinks compared to Spain. Uh, and I can't eat this herring, you know, I need to go back for, for good Spanish food, you know, this is impossible, and tapas, and, you know, uh, Rioja, you ever drink Rioja wine? Uh, you know, really good Spanish wine. I mean, what, is the, what, are, what do the Dutch know about uh, wine? Uh, so, um, indeed, they go back to Spain. Now, how do they go back to Spain? Uh, they, they're called returning to the lands of idolatry. They go back to Spain. They could get caught by the Inquisition. But nevertheless, they felt more comfortable. In other words, something about this, this whole process, this uh, rite de passage, this, this liminal thing between being Christian and Jewish is really very interesting here. When we, uh, as you know full well, when a convert converts, whether it's to Judaism or to Christianity and so on, you don't give up your previous identity totally. In other words, it becomes a mixture. 
If it's, it's a mingled identity. In other words, you are Christian and Jewish. You are both. You, you see yourselves from that perspective. In addition, there's a whole other cultural dimension here. The Muranos would sit in, uh, in Amsterdam and would get together on Tuesday and Thursday nights to read each other Spanish and Portuguese poems. It was a poet society. In other words, for them, their culture, the culture of their homeland was not Jerusalem, it was, it was, uh, Madrid, it, it was Spain, it was, it was uh, Barcelona, Madrid, uh, uh, Valencia, wherever they came from. Um, they, were, they were a part of this culture and therefore they were proud of it. They wrote in Spanish, they wrote in Portuguese. Most of their documents were written in these languages. And therefore, they felt alien within the context of, of, of Amsterdam, even though it was an open society. So, on the one hand, we have these very serious zealots for the faith. On the other hand, we have those who were indifferent, and thus a dialogue emerges, an attempt to bring one uh, camp into the other, and so on, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing. There is another interesting dimension of this community, simply to describe the various ideological streams. One of my lectures next week uh, in the Messianic series is on the messianic figure of the 17th century Shaphite Svi. Uh, I can't tell you very much about him tonight, I don't have the time, but I, all I can say is the following. Many conversos became followers of Shaphite Svi. Many conversos believed in the messiahship of Shaphite Svi. He turned out to be a false messiah, if you don't know the story of Shaphite Svi. He eventually converted to Islam. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, they were followers. They lived in two worlds. Shabbat Tzvi was only externally on the outside of Muslim, but inside he was still Jewish, they contended. And therefore, uh, a Sabbatean circle existed in Amsterdam, in Hamburg, uh, even uh, in a place called Smyrna. Smyrna was in Turkey. It was an enclave of Converso merchants, uh, and it was also the birthplace of Shabbat Tzvi. So in other words, they traveled all through the Mediterranean and so on with their international uh, uh, trade, et cetera, et cetera. So clearly we have the messianic dimension here as well, which is quite interesting. Followers of Shabbat Svi called Sabbateans, but also followers of the Messiah. The same Menashe ben Israel I mentioned earlier, who goes to Cromwell, actually believed that, the, that when Jews had settled in every community of the world, the Messiah would come. And this, of course, coincided with millinery and messianic interests on the part of Christians. I can't help but underscore that in this period of time, Christians and Jews are dialoguing, are speaking to each other, are debating, are learning from each other. Uh, in, I, 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 I mentioned in another previous lecture, it's all blended into one now, but I mentioned uh, that uh, in, uh, in the 17th century, Manasseh ben Israel published a Mishnah, uh, that is the code of Jewish law, uh, the basis of our Talmud, a Mishnah Menukhevet, a Mishnah with vowels. In other words, for a beginning student of rabbinic literature, right? Uh, who was it written for? Uh, it was clearly written for conversos who were learning their Jewishness or returning to their Jewishness, but it was also written for Christian priests who wanted to study Mishnah. Uh, I gave a whole lecture on the revival of the Mishnah among Jews and Christians in the early modern period. Christians were translating the Mishnah into Latin and were studying rabbinic texts because they thought they could reclaim Jesus through the Mishnah. Impossible task from my perspective, but nevertheless they thought somehow they could do it. Um, 
In any case, uh, so we have a, a group of people who are interacting with the Christian world, who are internationally, economically, mobile, and moving around and are part of a larger network of Muranos that eventually we create what we call the Murano diaspora. Uh, and clearly uh, a, a variety of types. Clearly a lot of the conversos remain Catholic, remain or indifferent. Or we have the most remarkable example of a man named Samuel Palash. An historian has written a whole biography of him. Palash knew uh, uh, how to use his religious identity. When he was in Amsterdam, he was Jewish. When he went back to Spain for his trade purposes, he was Catholic. And when he had to go to North Africa to do his trade there, he was Muslim. In other words, he would switch his identity as fast as he could make an economic uh, kind of uh, uh, negotiation. Uh, and thus, uh, not only are people mobile, but ideas are mobile, identities are mobile. This is indeed a world which is very different from the Middle Ages and the world that preceded it. These Jews indeed are international and cosmopolitan and outlook. They come from a place where, finally, the other aspect I want to talk about before I get to the, the final thing is uh, the fact that they saw themselves as members of a nation. Here we're speaking about something that is really quite interesting. I mentioned that Spain was the birthplace of racial anti-Semitism. You know sometimes the victims of, uh, of the racist sort of imitate unconsciously the behavior of their oppressors. In this case, we can speak about the fact that uh, these Jews saw themselves as members of a racial or ethnic group which were Sephardic Jews. When the Ashkenazim first came to Amsterdam at the end of the 17th century, the Sephardim had nothing to do with them. They would not allow their daughters to marry them. Uh, in fact, uh, there is one brilliant article by an historian which says, you know, was talking about the issue was mental health. What did they do with their mentally uh, sick? And they gave them to Ashkenazim to take care of. You know, the lowliest of the low. Ashkenazim were not worth anything. The Sephardim were elite, and they saw themselves as an ethnic identity. So even when they did not enter the synagogue, and we have wonderful pictures of this synagogue where people are walking around, talking with each other, their dogs running around, men, women, etc., etc. They're doing everything but praying in the synagogue. Um, they're probably negotiating their, their business, whatever, I don't know. Um, but clearly as kind of Jews without synagogue, uh, or Jews that were minimally connected to the synagogue, they saw themselves primarily in terms of their ethnic identity. Now that brings me to the final piece of this. And that is the few people who could not find their place within this world. The process by which a Christian returns to Judaism is not a simple one, it's a very complex one. And as I suggested, along the way, this mingled identity or this, you, know, you become a Jew, but nevertheless you think in, in ways which you were brought up to think of. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the, the blending of one into the other simply just falls apart. This was the case of Oriol da Costa, who we already spoke about at the beginning of the lecture. And this was also the case of Baruch Spinoza, who became Benedict Spinoza. So I want to say a word about Spinoza before I close this lecture. Because Spinoza, to me, is a giant, an enormous giant of Western thought, not only Jewish thought. And here's a remarkable example which Amsterdam creates for us 
of where Western intellectual history meets Jewish intellectual history in a direct way. I teach a course on modern Jewish thought at, at Penn and before that at Yale and, and, uh, and on so many other places. It's actually uh, part of the great courses, uh, the entire courses there. I begin with Spinoza, and the rest of modern Jewish thought is a response to Spinoza. So Spinoza creates the challenge. Spinoza was born into a Converso family in Amsterdam. He went to the Talmud Torah of the Sephardim. He mastered Hebrew sources. And then he became essentially a skeptic. And he moved farther and farther away from Judaism. The most important work from our perspective is his theological political treatise, which was published in 1670, several years after his death, but had been written, of course, many years earlier. The theological political treatise is a major statement of Western European thought. It argues essentially that the Bible was created by human beings, the beginning of biblical criticism on the one hand, and also the notion of what is a government and what is its relationship to religion. The separation of religion and state is ultimately found in this treatise as well. In this respect, uh, Spinoza is one of the first of the liberal thinkers, or the birth of liberalism which emerges with Spinoza. In other words, the mosaic idea of theocracy has no longer any meaning in modern-day Amsterdam, and therefore, what we need to do is to separate religion and law. What is divine law? Divine law are those moral principles based upon our rational understanding. We arrive at God by thinking, by cogitating, by understanding God in a direct way. The law, the religious precepts, they are for the unwashed masses, but they are only voluntary. They are no longer compulsory. What Spinoza has done is to undermine the rabbinic, to undermine normative Judaism, and to argue that to be a religious person is ultimately to be neither Jewish nor Christian, but to simply be a rational human being. And thus to strive. In other words, he was not an atheist. He was indeed a pantheist, if you want to understand exactly where he came from. But ultimately, what he was arguing was presenting a post-Jewish Christian religion based upon reason. Reason is the love of God. Reason is the only way to express oneself in terms of, 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 of the religious feeling. And therefore, ultimately, the whole basis of the Jewish community and its rabbinate is no longer meaningful. I should add, parenthetically, that the Mahmud as I, 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 I left out, was basically a community leadership of merchants. And essentially, they hired rabbis to be their employees. The rabbi was no longer in Amsterdam the chief decisor of Jewish law. He was, as all modern rabbis are, paid employees. They can be hired and they can be fired. That began already in Amsterdam, and we have... Uh, several rabbis declaring themselves, we want more power, we want more authority. No, the mamad will decide, even on questions of harem. And of course, harem, uh, uh, expulsion from the community, um, of course, is the fate of Spinoza. Spinoza was excommunicated um, because of his heresy. Um, it is unprecedented, even in the history of Amsterdam itself, that this happened, uh, or the Costa, I guess, was another example, but we have only two or three cases. Heresy was not an issue. But you could ask the question, why heresy? When did Jews try other Jews for heresy? 
And the answer is, I would argue, that the mamad was both a reflection of the converso experience, just as Spinoza was a reflection of that experience. They thought like a Christian. In other words, for them, issues of faith were important. My grandmother used to tell me when I uh, refused to get up to go to shul on Shabbos morning, I would say, I'm an atheist. And she would say to me, I don't care if you're an atheist or not, you go to shul. <laughs> there was something very Jewish and insightful about that. Jews don't have to believe, they have to daven. Uh, so, in other words, the whole idea of him being excommunicated because of his faith, to me, was a, a kind of, the Mahmud were thinking uh, Christian-like. It was they were thinking in terms of categories of faith. So be that as it may, what we have here is a remarkable uh, exchange between the secular philosopher uh, and the Jew. Um, and of course, Spinoza is such an important figure uh, in, in, in modern Western thought. Uh, the impact of Spinozacism on Western thought uh, from the 17th century on, not only on Jews, but on, uh, on, on the non-Jewish world, is absolutely enormous. Uh, Jonathan Israel, uh, who just retired from the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, has written a four-volume work on the history of Spinozacism, in which he argues that almost every intellectual aspect of Western civilization is tied up with Spinoza. And here, and then, there's a remarkable example of where a, a person coming out of the Jewish community has had such a resonance within uh, the larger intellectual world of Christianity uh, and beyond. I must tell you, just by, uh, by way of, of concluding this, a, a personal story, um, Spinoza's house is still located between Amsterdam uh, and The Hague. The Hague is also one of my favorite places, so I'm going to be definitely going there in a couple of weeks. And I go to the New Kerk. Um, well, first of all, I go to this, the, the cemetery outside of Amsterdam where I see Spinoza's parents buried. But Spinoza, Spinoza, of course, was excommunicated, so he's not buried in the Jewish cemetery. He's buried in the New Kerk, in the New Church in uh, The Hague. And there, uh, his grave with a Latin inscription, I go there and I say, Kaddish, you know, I'm a kind of Spinozist maybe a little bit. Uh, and, uh, but what is really interesting is there, there is a mythic story of how uh, the, the, uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, was touring The Hague in the 1950s, and he went by the grave and he, he made a plea to uh, Belgium, uh, to the Netherlands, to allow uh, them to uh, take the, the grave, to take the body to Israel and be reburied as part of the Jewish people. Um, and lo and behold, if you look at the grave very clearly, you will see it's all in Latin, uh, the inscription, except in the corner, someone has carved three Hebrew letters, Amcha. Uh, your people. I, I don't know where that came from. I have no idea. It doesn't fit into the inscription, whether some Jew actually just did that with a knife or whatever. I have no idea. Um, but uh, clearly Spinoza and that whole quarter, by the way, which was uh, is, you know, in honor of the Holocaust, and so when you walk around there and you see Jewish hate, it, it, it's, it's really a wonderful place among many places uh, to visit. Uh, which calls the, the, the presence of Spinoza uh, in, in, in The Hague in Amsterdam. So let me close by saying three very quick things. Why is Amsterdam important? Why is this moment in Jewish history important? On the one hand, I start with just what I said. The impact of Jewish history and its intertwining with European experience and European thought is enormous here. 
uh, if Spinoza is a product of this community, and if he reflects a larger mentality of the conversos, the Moranos, we are speaking about, indeed, a convergence which is quite significant. You can't study Jewish history in isolation, but you can't study general history without studying Jewish history as well. In other words, the two actually come together here and play an extremely important role in the development of modern thought. But let's go back, secondly, to the idea of the first modern Jews. Perhaps some of what I've described to you is familiar. Adults with great you know, backgrounds, BAs, MAs, PhDs, medical degrees, engineering degrees, and so on. We are educated so significantly within our culture, but not in Jewish things, for the most part. Some of us have, of course, yeshiva backgrounds or backgrounds from a Jewish camp or Israel or whatever. But for the majority of Jews living in America, clearly our own secular education far outstrips our Jewish education. Um, for most of us, we separate our secular and our religious identities, uh, as the conversos did. We are mobile. We are part of a larger cultural world. We are Jews by choice. We don't live in a community that is any longer coercive and tells us what to do. The rabbi uh, and his institution are voluntary associations. You can go on Friday night and Saturday to hear the rabbi and to participate in the service, or you can stay home and watch uh, what you, Friday night Blue Bloods or whatever you watch. I gave it away. I watch it. I watch Blue Bloods. Um, uh, in any case, no, I know it's a jewel. Uh, so, uh, so uh, and, uh, as the case may be, uh, we choose to be or not to be Jewish, and we live in a secular world where we make these choices. Doesn't Amsterdam, in some respects, sound very much like our own world and are very much a part of the modern experience. And finally, um, let us not, you know, historians are simply supposed to speak about things they understand. But there is a dimension to this story that is really quite remarkable. The tenacity of faith, the struggle to be Jewish against imposing odds, the Murano experience is one of the most painful chapters in the history of Jewish-Christian relations, but it is also one of the most romantic, inspiring, and uplifting moments as well. In the fact that these people cut off from being Jewish for several centuries, somehow found their way back to rebuild, to reclaim their birthright, and to create one of the most interesting and exciting Jewish communities of uh, modern Jewish history. Um, so I guess I asked you at the end uh, to remember not so much the first story I told at the very beginning, but the flickering candles. In other words, um, the fact that we, in remembering them, you know, keep that light alive. I don't want to sound like a, uh, you know, this is not a camp uh, kind of uh, inspirational talk I'm giving here. But what, what it seems to me, when I think of those 613 commandments, and I think of the synagogue, and I think of the experience of these people coming out of Inquisition and declaring themselves Jews, that we uh, should take pride in being part of that heritage as we recall and remember it. Um, I guess the, the big question, of course, is can we survive as the Converso survived? Um, but I'll leave that question to... Uh, I'm <laughs> <laughs>
30, so I have 20 minutes for questions or less. Is that okay with you, Rabbi? Okay. Uh, go. Well, just a quick comment. I think we will survive because of DVRs. So people can oh, DVRs. Definitely I watch you. Uh, <laughs> my question is, as you're describing the comparisons and the experience of people going back to their, their faith, I am imagining all types of scenarios where suddenly a marriage becomes interfaith and children who were raised perhaps Catholic suddenly are being brought back Perhaps it's a mother to being Jewish, or if it's a father. Um, I'm wondering what kind of accommodations were made. Like in the case of if it's a man who wants to go back to be a Jew, he has a he has a non-Jewish wife. They have children. Were there accommodations made so that those children could become Jewish, that the wife would become Jewish? Were there a lot of families torn apart as a result of this? Um, it just seems to me it, it has inherent in it all kinds of. Of problems in that regard. You got it. I, that, that's, I'm really glad you made that observation. It's exactly uh, the complicated scenario that uh, that we're talking about. And therefore, rabbis dealt with a challenge which was overwhelming. I mean, there were obviously conversion classes going on constantly. Uh, there were people studying, you know, elementary, uh, you know, Judaism and so on. Um, but clearly, the notion of torn families, in other words, that literature or those letters, I mean, you'll see just the letters of Eliyahu Montalto that I gave out, but that's only one of, of the uh, you know, tip of the iceberg. Uh, the challenge of, uh, of families uh, splitting apart, uh, and indeed, a large number of conversos not returning to Judaism. I mean, we have this remarkable community, but they are not the majority. Uh, the, they, they are a, a distinct minority, but nevertheless a minority. Uh, but clearly torn apart, and also there's an instability built in here. In other words, when you choose to do something, you can also choose to walk away. Um, and particularly when these people are traveling, you know, from place to place and so on. Again, there is a real strong sense of ethnic identity here, but it doesn't necessarily manifest itself religiously. So what happens is by the 18th century, the religious community and its rabbinate and the mamad become more and more... Um, uh, inflexible and incapable of dealing with reality, so they, they diminish in terms of numbers. This is part of the reason why they ultimately disappear. I mean, there's such a, a small little speck of the Sephardic community that remains today in Amsterdam. Um, holding on with even greater fervor to their orthodoxy, but nevertheless losing out for the majority of people that have just left, have gone elsewhere, and have secularized. I mean, the other aspect of this modern uh, equation is, is is the secularization of a, of a group of Jews who are Jewish in all kinds of ways other than, uh, than through religiosity or through spirituality. But absolutely, these personal tragedies, uh, th this is the, um, uh, the, the stuff of rabbinical responsa written in this period, all about converso problems. Can this boy marry this girl and so on? Is, is it, are they Jewish? Are they not Jewish? What to do with them? This begins as early as the 15th century, but continues right through the entire period of time. Uh, and the role of these rabbis in Amsterdam, who have to be trained for the first generation and beyond, um, is one of, again, simply trying to accommodate a reality or deal with it, because they don't have full control of it. They can no longer compel. They, they're ignored, essentially, or they are... Uh, you know, simply employees. Uh, there's one uh, wonderful chapter one of my students, several students of mine wrote on Amsterdam. Yitzhak Abu Av, Da Fonseca, was a rabbi in Amsterdam. He lived almost 100 years. He went off to Recife and then he came back. 
he writes a whole treatise in which he explains the power of the Mahmad and the rabbi who is subservient to the Mahmad. He actually articulates this as a position that a rabbi should take, um, which is you know, kind of a text that he's obviously trying to win the pleasure of his lay people. But it is indeed an example of, uh, of the modern rabbi. And the dilemma the rabbi comes to educate with all of his knowledge uh, to, to, to transform this community. And at the same time, these are also his employers who uh, are judging him for everything or her for everything that, that, that they do. I know I come from a rabbinic family. Uh, and the, 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 uh, the, the tribulations of my father in, in the rabbinate led me to become an academic, I guess. But, uh, 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 so, so in any case, uh, you hit on a real important point within this experience. Yes? Are people of this generation able to tell whether or not they're descendants from Moranos or Conversos? Because it sounds to me like there's a lot of mixing there. Yeah, all right, so you're speaking about contemporary manifestations of this. Yeah, and this is, of course, the Southwest or, uh, and, uh, you know, Arizona and so on, and New Mexico and uh, all these areas. So these are obviously remnants of those who were tried in the Inquisition in Mexico. Uh, and thus this population of conversos is a later manifestation of what I was speaking about in terms of Amsterdam. Uh, remember, you use the word converso Murano, and I'm suggesting that uh, although you know, we have a problem with terminology, we can explain it, I was using that more or less interchangeably. Murano is simply a negative kind of word for the same phenomenon. But these individuals were clearly, uh, could be totally Catholic, or return, or be halfway in between, and so on. But from the point of view of the Inquisition, they became, uh, they, they were accused of heresy. They were part of the Catholic Church, and therefore they needed to, 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 to uh, so uh, the remnants of them, yeah, there's some in Spain and Portugal. They don't recognize any longer their identity. I mean, there have been many anthropological studies of these groups, and so on. Um, for all intensive purposes, uh, the larger community of Sephardic Jews living in Amsterdam were gone by the 18th century. And by the beginning of the 19th century, they were overwhelmed by an Ashkenazi population, which began coming in 1648 during the Kremlinsky pogroms. There were a series of pogroms in Eastern Europe. Large numbers of Eastern European Jews moved westward, first into Germany and ultimately in Amsterdam. Tell you a story about them. Um, uh, one scholar, well, two scholars have published an essay uh, which is, you know, it, it just shows you that there's nothing new under the sun. Um, large numbers of poor Ashkenazic Jews entering this elite Sephardic community where ethnic identity is important, where these Ashkenazi Jews aren't considered to be real Jews from the point of view of these uh, holy Sephardic Jews. Um, and uh, large numbers are coming in and the uh, the Chabrat, the Gemilut Hasadim, the Society for Charity, is simply overwhelmed. So it concocts an idea, believe it or not, this is, this is actually in the documents of the 17th century. Let's hire several ships, put them on a ship, and send them to the land of Israel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, we seem to repeat ourselves, right? So they didn't, they didn't want to deal. Of course, they didn't go, they didn't raise the money, and no one wanted to go to Israel, or not enough people wanted to go to Israel uh, in the 17th century where it wasn't particularly uh, an easy place. I mean, it was, it was we're talking about Safed and, and the Ottoman Empire and so on, that's another story. Um, 
Yes, so and then over here. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Oh, go on, no, no, go. No, no um, in these, uh, well, and particularly in Holland, where they, you know, you said they could be Jewish, not, not Jewish, this, that, the other, did they circumcise their sons? Yes. <coughs> yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to add, that, you know, we have Pinkas, Pinkas, Mohalim, we have, we have uh, in, in, in the Talmud Torah library uh, s several uh, 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 books of the Mohalim of converting, you know. Uh, so, so, yes, uh, circumcision and uh, uh, making them as Jewish as possible begins with this. So that's clearly <coughs> part of, of our story. Uh, okay, here and then over there. Here, yeah, go on. Okay, uh, in the past 50 or 70 years, I would have observed that years past, Jews were with convictions, now they're with nostalgia. Do you think it's going to continue? Well, you asked me about American Jewish life now. I'm a mere historian, I just don't love the past. So, what did you say? Conviction and now nostalgia? Yeah, and now were truly Jewish. You felt it in your gut. Today, you mean cardiac Jews as opposed to gastronomic <laughs> Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cardiac Jews. That's what I call them. Right. Can uh, nostalgia and feeling, you know, that reminds me of a very interesting book by, uh, you know, Arnie Eisen's books? So he, he and Steve Cohn have this book about uh, the sociology of the Jewish community. You know that book? Um, in which uh, they argue that uh, in fact, I, I polemicized with him in my last tape on the, the Great Teachers Award. He broke me a note, didn't like it. But I, I say, you know, at the end of his book, I forgot the name of the book, um, I use it as one of my textbooks in my Modern Jewish Thought course. Uh, he says that ultimately the Jewish thinkers aren't relevant. You know, you don't need Buber, Rosenzweig, and all these people that I teach as well. Um, ultimately, Jews are not, uh, they're not gaining their conviction. Um, from uh, from uh, intellectual ideas, they get them from nostalgia. They get them from their grandparents. They get them sitting around the seder table and so on. Uh, I would suggest that nostalgia is only one or two generations. It doesn't last. Uh, nostalgia is not enough to sustain the Jew. I think li literacy. I think obviously religiosity, spirituality, all of those components are important together. But uh, our, from my perspective, where I sit, and I'm only a mere academic, uh, the issue of literacy is really the greatest challenge. And how do we convey this and pass this on? I don't know. I I I, uh, I know as well as you do. So when I you ask me a question like this, I can simply give you my opinion, but it's not worth that much. I, I, I announced that it's worth a little more, but. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we need to try our best. I mean, there is a miracle here in this story, so maybe what we, uh, you know, miracles can always return, perhaps. Yes? Uh, uh, wait, I, I, I was going to pull it. Yeah. yeah. My friend follows me from place to place. <laughs> you uh, describe many of the conversos as being wealthy, um, coming from Spain and then through, to, through Portugal. Was it um, the policy... Of Portugal to allow these conversos to leave with their wealth, knowing that they're leaving the country. I had the idea that, you know, when when people left because of religious reasons, yeah. they had to leave everything behind. I think they were mostly nouveau rich. I think they became ri rich later on, and I don't want to convey the impression that all <coughs> conversos were rich. There were lots of poor people in Amsterdam as well, uh, but nevertheless. Um, very much, you know, I, this is a whole another history um, uh, the subject of Jews and capitalism. Um, 
in, within a capitalist world, several historians have argued Jews flourished in such a way that, you know, as a, as a group that was very hungry and trying to make it big, in other words, they rose. So here's a wonderful example of that. They were educated. Many of them came from universities. I have a long list of converso doctors. You know, I'm interested in Jewish doctors. And there are uh, hundreds who were tried at the Inquisition. Uh, and I have all of their names and so on and their testimony. And many of the, by the way, the, the, these doctors came to Amsterdam, they came to Hamburg. In Hamburg, there was an entire population of converso physicians who were really making it big. And in fact, were so successful uh, that the Christian uh, physicians who were living in the city were already protesting. Uh, I must tell you also, I, you know, I'm a crazy fan uh, of cemeteries. And there are so many Jewish cemeteries that are still extant in Europe. Um, Amsterdam has an incredible Uberkerk, uh, has a wonderful cemetery uh, of all of these important converso luminaries. Uh, in Hamburg, where I've just been, because there's an institute for Jewish studies, believe it or not, in Hamburg, and I have a regular appointment there as well. So in the cemetery there, I often go, and because uh, several of the Jewish physicians that I've written about, converso physicians, are buried there. Um, and you should see these graves. They are in Spanish, Portuguese, and Hebrew. And I've actually seen, and there are also biblical scenes which they paint on, on these tombstones. And I've actually seen uh, converso graves with a cross and a mugging uh, together, covering all bases, I guess. Um, so, in other words, mingle identities and, and, and the struggle to define oneself as Jewish and coming out. And this is an incredible story which you already alluded to. Um, so they weren't all rich. I think they made their wealth, the ones that really rose to the top made their wealth uh, by, you know, rising from the, you know, in, in Amsterdam itself in this dynamic economic environment and became identified with, with their connections with trade and also family connections. That's very important. Francesca Trivellato, in her book on the conversos of Livorno, she studied thousands of documents from several converso families, economic merchants. Their connections are through family and through family ties. So they go from, from community to community, and since they're all members of the Nazion, uh, they have a built-in advantage by moving from place to place, and thus well-suited for this international trade system. Uh, okay, I guess we'll be here now. Yes, in the back. Okay, so tell us about the Venturian trying to get the Spinoza's story. He wasn't still buried there, as far as I know. Why he was not brought to Israel? I don't know. I guess there, were, there wasn't enough interest. Maybe the chief rabbi had something to do with it. Exactly. Tell a story, 12 pages long, telling, telling the reader, maybe it's about time to reclaim Spinoza, that's the title of the article. And he told the story, there are, there are by of general. Yeah. Let me use that, uh, your, your interesting comment to add something here. So Spinoza has an interesting history within Judaism. I mean, obviously, as a negative, I know from Moses Mendelssohn on, uh, each thinker, as I said, is formulating a response to Spinoza, you know, who has challenged the very legitimacy of the Jewish community, of the Jewish faith, etc., etc. But nevertheless, in Eastern Europe, particularly with the rise of the secular Jews, um, Spinoza found a new audience. And believe it or not, in the 19th century, he was translated to Hebrew, uh, I take my uh, University of Pennsylvania, we have one of the great Judaic libraries of the world, and I take my students at the end of my class to the rare book room, 
And we just happened to pull out a copy of the Ethics in Hebrew, written in the 19th century by a guy named Rubin. Uh, Daniel Schwartz, uh, an historian at George Washington University, has written a book about the legacy of Spinoza in Jewish thought. And there you can trace the history of Spinoza with, among uh, Eastern European Jews who found uh, him extremely attractive from the point of view of their own Jewish identity. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, uh, secular Zionism, um, uh, Klatskin, for example, uh, all these people found Spinoza extraordinarily, uh, so it wasn't just Ben-Gurion, but their whole group of secular Jews. Uh, there is a very rich Jew in, in uh, England named Posen who founded a foundation in which he gives uh, millions of dollars for secular Jewish education in America and particularly in Israel, where uh, uh, the subject of Spinoza is, is extremely important. So, um, indeed, he has both those who castigated him but also his followers. One last thing for me. Uh, six months ago, the BBC had a program about Spinoza. Yeah. And they, they started the program by saying, that he is the man who ushered modernity at the age of 24. Mm -hmm. The Judaism, of course, the rabbis excommunicated him, and the Christians called them Satan's emissary. Sure. A book forged in hell. That's how we discussed it. Fine, and, uh, but read, uh, you know, I, I, movies are, are, are documents are very good, but read Jonathan Israel if you want to see someone who is infatuated with the presence of Spinoza within Western thought. Uh, and clearly, I suggested already the, the beginning of modern Ju uh, Judaism in Amsterdam, so Spinoza is a part of that. We have our, you know, and, and, and also the Jews who tried Spinoza were also modern Jews. In other words, I'm not suggesting modern Judaism means a lot, as, as you understand. Uh, all right, we think a few more, there's so many questions. How long should we go? Should we end? We should end. All right, well, let me take uh, two more questions and I'll stop. Is that okay, yeah. Okay, okay go ahead. I have a quick question. How successful was the Catholic Church in its conversion program to Lacrimosa? Were there any Jews left other than those that were converted? Uh, By the way, when you're talking about how successful was the Catholic Church in Spain and Portugal? In Spain and Portugal. Was every Jewish family converted or killed? Now remember, in 1492, all the Jews were expelled from Spain. So they were anywhere from an estimate of 150,000 to 300,000. It's hard to predominate. Mean, historians take different numbers. But the Jews had left already. So in other words, Spain had no more Jews. There were only conversos there at that point. Now they went to Portugal. But they then, by decree in 1497, were forcefully converted to Christianity. All of them. All of them. Okay. Or they had to leave. So there were no Jews anymore in Portugal and Spain, not officially. Yeah. And, and the extent of the, the Catholic reach was into Iberia, but not into the Netherlands and... Uh, and, and Netherlands had liberated itself from the Catholics. In other words, they were Protestants. They were a new version of Protestants, so they were against the notion of the church. And therefore, the church could not have an impact upon it. They did in, in, in Leuven and in, 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 in Brussels and so on. And there, the Catholics were there. You know, there's a war which is still going on between Catholics and Protestants in Belgium, but, but no longer. But, but we, got, we had no migration, we had no immigration of Jews from the persecuted countries into the liberated country. Uh, perse the, the persecuted Jews were. Well, the, 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 the Jews. Did they not recognize that Holland was 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 open and and 
fled to Holland prior to being uh, forced to convert? Uh, 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 no, no, no. They had already, again, the comparisons had already become, these were Christians who, who returned to Judaism. Their, their, their entire population was Christian initially, and they returned to Judaism. That was their, their Jewish background goes back to the, fourth, to the end of the 15th century. But uh, clearly these were Christians who were returned. So, so they are a different population. Last question, yes. question. Um, it depends. In other words, uh, clearly um, there, there was suspicion. Uh, they didn't want to marry their children to them, uh, some of them. Uh, there, there was also an appreciation, again, that uh, we need to reclaim them and bring them back to Judaism. So, in other words, the reaction was very complex. But what is interesting here is that um, although they were connected, particularly in their 15th century origins in Spain, they were separate communities and have kind of separate trajectories. Just as, uh, you know, later on, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim, over the course of time, uh, you know, uh, at times uh, feel part of the same community, but also see themselves very differently. We can talk about, you know, the, the situation of Italian Italy, which had Sephardim, Ashkenazim, Italian Jews. And there are two kinds of Sephardim. Remember, the Sephardim who came to the Ottoman Empire are Eastern Sephardic Jews. They came out as Jews, and they retained their Jewish identity in the Ottoman Empire. The Jews of Western Sephardic origin were originally conversos. So indeed, even those two communities had difficulty recognizing each other and relating to each other. So um, indeed, there is one Jewish people, but as you see, as in our own world, uh, they are fragmented and broken and sometimes uh, very contentious with each other. Uh, so, you know, nothing has changed uh, in some respects. Uh, thank you for being such a great audience.